Greetings, friends. I'm Will Nicholas, your timekeeper. And I'm Hunter Michelle Kaufman. And I'm variant Darren Wright. And this is Loki, the Sacred Timeline. Sorry, I'm a tangent. The TVA got him! Oh no! You have to do that again. I insist, you must. Free will! Free will! No, no, um... Anywho. Loki. Sacred Timeline. Never odd or even... Welcome to Loki, the Sacred Timeline. And this week we have the Nexus event, which is the fourth episode in the series of six. The TVA captures Loki and Sylvie, and Loki reveals what he's learnt about the TVA agent's origins to Mobius. Meanwhile, Ravona brings uh, Sylvie and Loki before the timekeepers, and one of them gets ahead of himself and one of them gets ahead of himself when the prisoners break free. See, that's really bad. That's a bad pun, that is. Um, there's lots in this episode. <laughs> um, yes, uh, and um, I'm looking forward to talking about it. It's definitely a cutting episode, isn't it? Yes. Um, look, I really like this episode. It's, it's sort of the point where we actually do sit down and, and uh, get to look at what happens to an organisation when suddenly everyone starts questioning its its origins and their and their faith in it really this is a question this is a, a, a an episode where i thought that everyone really starts getting into uh, what what we call in christianity sort of deconstruction and in philosophy deconstruction suddenly uh, they they're given a a different viewpoint of the faith that they've had in the organization and suddenly everyone starts questioning it of course there are a couple of people there who have always questioned it um, and it's their presence that is starting to unsettle everyone else's faith. Yeah, I don't think they let Lokis into uh, TVA consulting uh, roles very often. So the chaos of a new person coming in has definitely starting to feel the effects. I think um, it's really interesting too that alongside the deconstruction, we've actually got this become very aware of the fact that the TVA and the timekeepers um, are a construct that they're actually um, not the not the, the the nature of the universe but actually just another 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 built or constructed perspective and I think that's where the deconstruction starts to challenge the the eternal truth of what um, everybody believed was to be correct she's interesting Michelle though you just said um that I don't let them Loki's in that, that often or that regularly and I think it's a very interesting question about how do they choose because this is the one that where everyone finds out that everyone's variant so that's not a spoiler anymore we can actually talk about that as apart from previous weeks um but we know that everyone else is variants but who do they choose and why do they choose certain people to be um, workers in this in, in this institu- in institution? Um, what about them makes them good value as people who will follow a particular line or a particular understanding or even have faith in the institution? My personal um, belief is that, and I've, I think I said this last week because we kind of mentioned it as well, is that the series of tests that you have um, 
in the TVA as you come through. So as when you're brought in as a variant, uh, there's the desk and then there's the are you a robot? There's um, please look at this and sign it if um, this is everything you've ever said. I think those types of things, and then you brought it before a judge. So those types of things to me seem like compliance tests. So are you going to come in not necessarily willingly, but are you going to come in with um, with a certain level of compliance? Are you going to question if you're a robot? Which, funnily enough, we find out that the um, timekeepers are robots. Um, are you going to go through and read everything you said? Because for bureaucracy, that's a big thing. You want to sit there and actually go through, or are you just going to sign it because that's too much work? How are you going to present yourself in front of the um, the judges in, um, in terms of that? So it might not necessarily be um, – they're definitely going to wipe your mind or versus prune you but once they've wiped your mind of memories I'm guessing they're assuming a core personality is going to shine through so now I I don't want to um step on Christianity's toes at any point of time but it's interesting that I, I, I think if you if you look at these things as compliance tests as are these people going to be people who would work really well in this community or in this team or this organization then perhaps we do do that in a lot of faiths as well. Um, when people come into Christianity or into any other faith, do we run compliance tests to check to see if they're going to be um, well behaved in the community um, before they sign on to it? Um, is that what we, what what um, what we do when we do things like catechism? Are we testing people's ability to live within the faith community or in this particular faith community? I don't know. What do you think, Will? Having gone through the ministerial, ministerial formation process for the Uniting Church, um, there, there certainly is a, um, a real testing of uh, institutional compliance. Um, and uh, I can remember while I was going through the process, I, didn't, I almost didn't make it because I wasn't prepared to give the pat answers that would actually get the, the credits and distinctions. How do you academically assess somebody's faithful response to constructing and deconstructing the universe um, is, is a really interesting question. When I was a chaplain at, uh, at, a, at a Christian school, um, one of the things that I had to do regularly, which I hated doing, was actually assess the Christian studies subject. Um, and so I'd be asking people to make statements of faith and then I would have to give them a grade as to whether or not they'd actually answered well in their in their ponderings um yeah so i mean i guess i'm in two minds there one is to say oh, there definitely is a selection process and but then i don't like what that says about me as somebody who has successfully navigated that process um you know am i am i gullibly compliant um um and and is is what you went through from information considered brainwashing or or mind erasing and i don't think it is i don't think it is but it's an interesting question to follow i mean my 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 um our church service that we did online the other day we plays us played a song called all are welcome and it's 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 a nice hymn it's lovely words about building yeah building a home where everyone is welcome and my little girl who's now three going on four walked around all day long singing it 
like annoyingly singing it. She picks up these tunes and words and will sing them. Anyway, I ponder, is there a community or is there an organisation where everyone is welcome? Because we know that by accepting everyone, the sometimes the fabric of our community actually gets questioned or, or might actually fall apart. And we see that in this story. Like, I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, the TVA has operated for who knows how long, millennia, um, under our noses. And it's it's only in this point of time when they take on this particular Loki that suddenly everything starts falling apart. Well, there's two things I want to say in response to that. Th- firstly, I thought you were going in a completely different direction there with the hymns. I thought maybe you were going to suggest that hymn singing was part of the brainwashing process um, and that by putting things to music, it makes them more susceptible uh, for belief processes. But uh, anyway, we can deal with that later on if we want to. But I think the other thing is about time in the TVA. It was something I picked up this time that I really struggled with because, you see, um, in a place that's outside of time, sometime before now, Sylvie is abducted by the TVA and processed. But the TVA is timeless so how do we measure time in a space without time? Um, it Was it really a long time ago? Um, how come Sylvie had aged so much, but the variants who are just human beings that have been pulled out haven't actually aged at all? Um, so, you know, was there a huge amount of time between when Sylvie was brought in and when, when our Loki was brought in? Um, or did it happen almost instantaneously in a way that is incomprehensible for us who are actually governed by linear time. Well, we understand that time operates differently in the TVA as it does in the real world. And that so when Sylvie is living in the real world, she would have aged appropriately. That being said, she is also an Asgardian who we also know age differently anyway. So um, she could be, who knows how old Sylvie is? And I'm not going to ask her. But see, if Sylvie disappeared through one of those little, um, you know, pet tempad things and and was on the run for hundreds of years, right, but the next time she comes back to the TVA is using the tempad only a few seconds after the first time she left, then, like, that's entirely plausible given the way the TVA works. And I guess that's the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, it's very difficult for us because we're superimposing our understanding of linear time on the TVA space when, in fact, it isn't like that. So it's completely covered by this singular clause word that says time works differently in the TVA, which is beyond our ability to be able to understand or comprehend. I think I've read a few spots where not even Marvel knows how time works hmm. in um in the Marvel universe because they've had a few different instances in particular movies and series that they've kind of worked a bit differently. So, Well, in any, um, any science fiction creation, they all seem to have concerns or different opinions about how, how time operates. I mean, Doctor Who would just say it was wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, and, and we all accept that. That's all we need. That's it. That's it. That's all we need. We, we, I believe that. That's fine. It works differently, and and so there's a sense in which what happens with 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 this kind of science fiction 
is that as long as we buy into the clause that it's actually different beyond our understanding, we are able to suspend disbelief and it no longer matters how it works. We take it as read. We, we believe. Um, and, and, and I actually think that that's a good circle round because I, I think that, that, that any construct requires a suspension of disbelief in order to be able to hold together. That, that the idea of a perfect construct, which explains anything, or the universe or, or time or any concept, is actually always going to be flawed by our, our, our understanding or experience. And so the moment we try to push too deeply into any construct, we'll actually discover that it begins to deconstruct in front of our eyes regardless of how perfect it might be. And during this podcast, we've had a few incidences where we've talked about this. So we've talked about it when Mobius and Loki were in episode two, were talking about Mobius's belief in the TBA. We talked about it last week in um, our salvation um a talk where our concept of salvation um, is different to God's concept of salvation because we're limited by um, humans. So we've got this again that our uh, ability to track time is different to that of the TVA and of the universe and the construct of the TVA itself is, you know, limited by what we can think of. So it's interesting what happens when your construct no longer fits. Um, how do you respond to that? Um, and and there's, I think there's so many different ways that people have responded, but in this particular case, um, in this story, it seems to be that we have a couple. Uh, well, we have three different ways. One is to be people who for whom the construct never fit. So we look at the Lokis at the moment. Um, uh, well, Loki and Sylvie, uh, this construct never really fit with them. Uh, they are they are mischievous and the idea of this kind of order is is against their their own um, sense of being and their, their own free will. We have people who live and breathe the TVA now, um, people like Mobius and uh, Renslayer and, uh, and, and all the other hunters and everyone else who seem to live and breathe the place and do not question it at all. Um, and then we start having people who... And in that case, when they do start looking at their construct and when it starts failing them, there's two different ways that they tend that they they seem to be going. One is to completely throw it all the way, um, and we see that with uh, with one of the hunters when she figures out that she's a variant, she suddenly goes nope and then does some things that actually is against the TVA. The other one is to double down on on the construct. And we see Renslayer doing that. And I, I think that's actually interesting in real life how often I see that happen. When someone questions your faith, a lot of people have a tendency to double down on it. I think there's a third option as well in that Mobius, um, it kind of sits in between them. So he starts to question the TVA, but instead of immediately giving it all up like um, Hunter B-15 does and um, doing that, he seems to go the route of wanting more answers so he seems to be in um until we don't um until he gets pruned we get that sense that he um hasn't made up quite made up his mind all he knows is that what he thought 
um, he knew was wrong. And this person here is the one that came in and um, said it was wrong. So he's going to get low-key and he's going to search for more answers. So I think there's that third kind of middle ground as well, Darren. And that's partially about experience too. So the hunter B... 15. B15, um, when she comes to Sylvie, it's because she has been enchanted and it seems to be that she's been enchanted therefore she has experienced memories from a past life um, and so she has come to Sylvie or because Sylvie has opened her mind to another alternative like um, let's say like maybe a religious leader might um, or uh, maybe uh, someone who leads you into meditation might open your mind into uh, different realities. And so her experience is suddenly she's got these visions of her in a different life, whereas Mobius hasn't been enchanted. He's been told, and there's a few things that aren't adding up, and so he starts exploring it. Um, and I think maybe that comes down to how we experience being told that things are different. Um, and it might be that in, in religious... Um, in religious communities, we have a similar thing when someone comes up to you and says, well, actually, this is this is what the scripture might have meant or this is what the faith might have meant. And you have to do some more research um, and thinking and pondering about it versus what happens if suddenly you find yourself in a community where, um, say, there's child abuse in and you have to do some major reconstructing or deconstructing of your understanding of the institution there's a power level here as well um where renslayer is the judge the top dog the we don't really see apart from the timekeeper's authority higher than her in this series but um she's the one doubling down she's the one convincing um, Mobius almost in a gaslighting type way that um, the TVA is correct and you don't have to ask these questions um, because she has the power, whereas Mobius um, and is the one that investigates all of the um, Nexus events and um, investigates crimes against the sacred timeline. So he's used to asking these questions. And then B15 is very much uh, having to make quick decisions in the field um, by her job. So it's a little bit of power as well where these middle management people who um, are kind of like, hold on, that's not quite right. But the people with the power are sitting there going, yeah, no, it, it is. It is right. Because it's scary when people start questioning the construct, isn't it? And the people who double down on it or the people who rely on the construct to to give them a, a lifestyle and employment and um, power will will have issues when people start questioning that. I find myself regularly nowadays being connected with people who are deconstructing their faith um, and they're in a faith community or they're attached to a church and they have a chat with someone saying, I'm asking these questions. And they, they go, well, have you had a chat with Darren? And they give him my contact details and I start having conversations with them because of their questioning. And there's a point where I go, woohoo, someone's having questions and maybe I can help you in this process of deconstructing and reconstructing, um, not in a way that's going to say, no, you must believe these things in order to continue being a part of this community or actually not even live in the fear that they might leave, leave the faith. But if you're if you're 
if your entire livelihood is attached to it, then maybe, like Renslayer, the idea is to try and double down and, and tell them that they are wrong to stop questioning and to get back in line again. But I think one of the things that's at the very heart of the Never Old or Even podcasts is is the ability to create a safe space through science fiction to begin the process of, of deconstruction because um, we're actually, as human beings, really, really good at reframing or reconstructing our reality to suit um, what will continue to leave us in a position of power or, or empowerment, that, that um, we... We actually need to um, have a narrative that assists us to feel like we have a, a, a sense of glorious purpose um, and can, can feel very lost when suddenly that's all taken away from us, especially if we start with a considerable amount of power in the first place because we have a vested interest in making sure that um, this locust-eating, honey-eating, itchy-clothes-wearing guy out in the wilderness doesn't actually destabilise our entire power structure and leave us with nowhere to go. So with that in mind, we start this episode in a linear fashion of being back in Asgard with um, who we know as Sylvie now, um, Loki then, was playing with the Valkyries and coming. Valkyrie was coming to save the day. Um, and then she gets taken by the TVA. Uh, more importantly, uh, Renslayer, who uh, was a hunter and obviously then promoted for great, a great job of, down the track. But we see her... Um, born predominantly female, so she seems to be um, as gender fluid but presenting female um, at that time. And that seems to be what everyone thinks as her nexus event because she was obviously of an age where she could have started training with the Valkyries. And what we learn about Lokis is that they're destined to lose. <laughs> And so if she's a Valkyrie, she's not going to be the um, the villain that everyone rallies around, around to defeat. She, she's going to grow up a hero. She's going to grow up a Valkyrie and um, no one's going to try to stop her. So is that the Nexus event? Is that her Nexus event? It can't be just because she was female because Loki's been female multiple times and I don't think he was taken Um by the TVA at those points, not that we're shown at least. And in, in this case, though, I, I like there's a conversation she has with Loki that says that so, sometime her path diverged enough to attract the attention of the TVA. And I do wonder what that was and why it wasn't before that. Or after that. And if this is the one sacred timeline, then maybe there was a point of time when the Loki that we are dealing with now actually did present as a little girl. Um, and somewhere along the line, something happened, something deviated enough to get that branch going and people came in and took her out. Um, so I, I, I suspect that this timeline that she lives is also the timeline that our Loki lives in. Um, and so we're talking, really are talking about the same person, but a slight deviation. Um, and so what is it? Is it the gender? Is it the actions? Or we, we're also left, we're left not sure because Renslayer doesn't give us the answer. The thing for me, like the only, 
the only thing in my mind about the gender, um, I have to come back to that Loki is gender fluid. So if the gender is important, the only thing we know in Asgard, um, which we learn from Thor in Thor Ragnarok, is that Thor wanted to be a Valkyrie but couldn't because of his gender. So the only thing I can think of is that if Loki continued to present female um, as a default, then she could have joined the Valkyries. And I think that that's the only thing that I can wrap my head around being um, without it being cruel to those who um, are gender fluid in that it changes her from a villain to a hero. And as we see Loki's one sacred timeline relies on him being the villain. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've really been trying to work my way through this. We've had this conversation a few times before. Um, and, and I think this is one of those moments where we, we, we have to be careful not to overthink the situation as well, because one of the things that came out of the train ride conversation is that, is that, um, Sylvie is not a frost giant. Like, so she is not our Loki. Like, she's something else. Um, like, I kind of got that impression as they were talking. Why? Because, because Loki tells her about his heritage and they do a heritage swap conversation on the no, train. No, she says that she knew she was adopted. Yes, but she doesn't confirm that she was a frost giant. And so what I'm not sure about here is whether or not um, there's there, there's multiple um, realities that are actually sitting along, alongside each other in the sacred timeline. You see, when they go in and reset the timeline after they take Sylvie, what does it reset to? Like, um, you know, um, is does it does it did they adopt a wrong person? Was this soon after Sylvie's adoption? And in this reality. Um, the the parents actually adopt somebody who isn't Loki to become their their other child, and so there's an entire other possibility for explaining why Sylvie's a variant here that has absolutely nothing to do with with gender, uh, but about the fact that they adopt the wrong child. This also explains, I think, um, and I'll bleep this out. I think alligator Loki, who actually appears later on. Um, so there's this sense in which, um, you know, the, the, the options of who to adopt um, could actually be the variant. Now, that opens up a really nasty set of events because that means that the actions and decisions of other people can cause a person to become a variant and be pruned from the timeline. And we know this to be true already because that's exactly what's happened to our Loki. The Avengers caused him to be pruned because of their, their 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 change of the timeline. And so there's this, it, it becomes like it's bad enough that you'd be pruned because of something you did or something you are, but to be, to be pruned from the timeline because of the actions and decisions of other people, that's, that's pretty awful. That's a good, I um, hadn't thought of it that far back too because when we think of nexus events we think of it only as a uh, short-term reset or short-term you did something like order a latte instead of a flat white Mm. and therefore you need to go back five minutes so that you can reorder again whereas yeah like um, it only just became the nexus event but how 
slowly did that Nexus events um, branch off? Because we see we see them be, um, being very quick to branch. And so what if this was a really slow one that uh, came kind of paralleled until that um, until that age? And they do mention that because when two Lokis actually hold hands um, and, and gaze lovingly into each other's eyes at the end of the world, um, we see that 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 seemingly insignificant little tiny event creates a massive curve in the timeline, which I don't, I don't fully understand why it was so dramatic because it wasn't going to have a big impact. Like if, if the world ended, why, why would it matter? And neither do I in a way other than to possibly think that maybe they would have survived had they held their hands. Um, maybe they are stronger than than they think they are, and, and maybe they would have survived this um, because of the unity that they had at that point of time. Um, who who really knows? But it is interesting because they say they can go anywhere in an ap- apocalypse, and anything they do doesn't have an effect. I mean, Loki goes off and releases a whole pile of goats at the end of the world, and and no one sees these goats coming out, but. They hold hands, and that causes such a, a, a branch that it's enough to grab everyone's attention. Are you suggesting that by their powers combined, they save the planet? Is that right? Is that like you know that? Well, we do see Loki repel a building that's about to fall on him. What if Loki and Sylvie are powerful enough to repel large pieces of moon that are going to destroy the planet, or just move? And, they, and just and by holding hands. They could just relocate. They could just teleport like Luke Skywalker from one side of the galaxy to another. I like to think it's not necessarily the holding hands. It's more the fact that if they um, die, they are not there to continue further events, which are part of the sacred timeline. So that's my personal uh, coming from it asexually that I didn't get the <laughs> I didn't get the potential romantic tension in the air until uh, until Mobius points it out. <laughs> that is a uh, that is a really good way of explaining that without giving any spoilers away. So I have no idea how I was going to talk about that without giving any spoilers. <laughs> yes, look, it's very we have to be very careful not to mention the alligator in the room. Is that right? Yeah. The alligator appears at the end of this episode, so you can talk, <laughs> can about, talk it about it without it. bleeping. That's correct. That's correct. There, there is a um, yeah, the, and then okay, let, we've talked about the beginning. Let's talk about that very end scene where, for thirty seconds, we've got the classic Loki from back in the sixties, um, all dressed up. Um, we've got Kid Loki, who's newer um, in the. I'm trying to remember young young Avengers. I was going about to say Teen Titans, but that's the wrong universe. <laughs> um, and we've got an alligator with horns, and we've got um, a black. I'm guessing Loki, who's got Thor's hammer. So we've got um, come with me if you want to live. Is that um, Arnie? I don't think Arnie. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, yes, that's right. Terminator. <laughs> Terminator Two. So we we do um, we do glimpse this um, for those who um, uh, are familiar with Marvel um, um, universe movies and episodes. You you might go looking for the the snippets. This is the only um, mid credit snippet that actually occurs in this series. 
Um, and um, it does, I guess it's there to in some ways relieve the tension because, you know, like we, we've we just lost Mobius and we've just lost Loki and we're kind of going, wow, if they've been deleted. And that's so the word prune and deleted have been used interchangeably throughout the series up until this point. I think intentionally to mislead us into believing that this was some form of disintegration or end. But clearly the end of this episode shows us that it is not um, and that something is beyond the pruning. So I've been thinking about this one too. Like I'm, my background is Christianity, so I'm, I'm, a, no. I'm a pastor in the Uniting Church. So, But in Christianity we, we have these – we have four Gospels, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we have a variety of other Gospels that haven't been included in canon. Um, very much like comic books, very much like the Marvel Universe. And each of those Gospels tell us a different version of Jesus. And I often wonder what would happen if you put each of those versions of Jesus side by side and put them in the same room and what would they look like, how would they sound and what are the things that would make them unique. And and in this particular episode, we get that. We kind of get a glimpse of it anyway, of what would happen if you had that many Lokis in the same room, um, that many variations. Because I'm not sure if all the all the Jesuses of each of the Gospels would actually get along with each other. And there's a fascinating point I wanted to raise in that from the Christian tradition because we get used to hearing stories or understanding stories from one particular lens or one particular perspective. And, and our lens and, and perspective has been shaped largely by the Council of Nicaea, um, where a group of knowledgeable men got together in a room and actually got to decide what was in and what was out. And 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 so that's kind of limited the focus of what it is that we've actually got, what story we actually own. Which is actually what happens when suddenly people who are in power start seeing the story change. Yeah. Because I would say that they've not necessarily formed formulated what's in and what's out. These creeds that we have often often give us an image of what is out. So I, I will talk to people in, in, in lay ministry training and say, so if you look at these creeds or if you look at these statements of the early church, you can often see what problems they're having or what arguments they're having or that there's someone out there preaching a different gospel or a different understanding of faith. And you can see that because they are deliberately wiped out. I said, these people are wrong. So these creeds often just come around and tell us who's out rather than who's in. I uh, don't have a minister background. Um, I'm here to be a fan, which is great. Um, so my, um, so to put it in uh, that kind of terms, would be the director's eye. So uh, the Loki series was directed by a woman. And so we get a woman's perspective, um, being the director, um, of this whole series. So we actually have uh, Sylvie in very modest for a superhero uh, outfit. We have Sif, who's been, whose outfit's been changed as well. Um, and it would be similar to uh, Black Panther was directed by a black man. So imagine if we had the Black Panther movie directed by a white guy. 
what kind of eye and lens that would um, that would have changed that movie um, about. And we, um, as fans, we a lot of the time look at the writer's room and the directors of a TV show or movie to see how um, different perspectives were incorporated. Was it all just a bunch of white people who are trying to write a, um, a black character, but because they're all white, they don't have those experiences? Or was it a mix of people who could all come together and give perspectives? So it sounds like the Bible also had that when you said a bunch of men come in, I'm like, oh, well, there goes all the gospels written by women. <laughs> so <laughs> immediately, so, um, you know, we have this in all kind of situations. And I think um, one of the, the issues that arises for us in that is is that direction whether we're talking about movies or whether we're talking about the councils of the church occurs as a as a response to chaos because without without direction everything could head in every direction and actually have no sense of cohesion and anything could go but but so we need direction we need a sense of law or order in order to be able to make sense of things but but at the same time, if that direction is so focused on a particular narrative, then it actually can squeeze out the pers- valuable perspectives um, in a different direction. And and so so uh, yeah, this 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 dynamic that's happening in the MCU, this this commentary on canon that's taking place as a meta story around the Loki series, is is actually something that is so very relevant to religious. I mean. We're coming at this from a Christian perspective, but um, there there are canons in in all of the all of the other religions um, that that whilst ever uh, while wherever we're actually trying to construct narrative for opinion on how things we don't understand work, we're going to end up with a, a cacophony of 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 chaos that needs to be sharpened into a kind of focus so that it can make sense. There's a, there's a. There's a clip that I'll have to find later on and send it to you for the Facebook page um, of Denzel Washington being interviewed um, and he's asked, could a white director have filmed this film? Um, And I can't remember what film it is. And he says no. Like, do you think that a white director could have done what Spike Lee did? And he says no, it's about culture. And I think there's something about what Michelle was just saying around what do we see, uh, how stories are being told and how they're being filtered. And that comes back to these three lizard people that are actually not really lizards or people at all. Um, And the question about how do you decide what what is the right future? What is the sacred timeline? How do they or whoever it is now, because we know that they're robots, so whoever controls the robots, how do they, how do they discern um, what is the right way for the world to go? Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to find out um, who that might be or who they might be. And it'd be um, interesting to see how much of um, the judge position um, because Renslayer's not been the first judge, um, actually knows about it because um, she's the one that's been into the timekeeper's room the most, as far as we're aware. Like um, Investigators like Mobius haven't been in there. So 
does she know that they're robots? Does she know there's something could at least, um, well, fishy is probably the wrong word because they don't know what a fish is, but do they, <laughs> do they know, like, does she have an idea, an inkling that those people aren't, aren't real or that they're being fed lines behind the scenes? You know, does she know that? Is that part of the initiation? And is that why she has extra reason to double down? Or does she not know, but because she's in that position of power, she's just like, no, this is it, or else I'll lose my power. And her her role in this is very much like a priest, uh, one of the high priests, who's allowed into the centre of the tabernacle to actually do the the sacred stuff. She's She's allowed to go somewhere where no one else seems to be allowed. And there might be other judge renslayers, like there might actually be other Mobiuses around. I mean, they're variants, so there could be millions of them around. Um, but this person is allowed into the sacred of sacred spaces um, and comes face to face with these three gods. And I wonder, I wonder if she ever questioned them. See, the closer you are to power, the less likely you are to question that power because you have a vested interest in making sure that the power that gives you power remains. Like there is that sense in which um, that, that there is a blindness that comes by by rising up the system, um, by, by becoming closer to the seat of power. You, you lose something of your ability to challenge that power because you'll be challenging the system that actually empowers you. Um, so that's a it's it's um that's a fascinating question to ask. And it also makes them seem a lot more sacred, a lot more holy, a lot more powerful because there's only um only one person or only a few others who are able to go into that space, and so you have to trust Renslayer um, as the leader of this of this community, I guess, or of this institution because she's the one that's allowed in there. One of the uh, things that came out of this for me was the the role of truth. We'll be talking about that a little bit today. Um, You know, there's this scene where we've got Loki and Mobius and Mobius tells, uh, sorry, Loki tells Mobius what we know to be a lie um, about what 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 the plan was and how they were working together and and how Sylvie came to see him some years ago and they came up with a plan together and so we're kind of there going okay well Mobius is taking notes and and you're wondering whether or not he's buying this and then then we get from Mobius a, a lie back to Loki that Loki swallows whole like and and is emotionally moved by this by this lie and so like it's 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 fascinating to see how the two of them are actually using lies to actually uncover greater truths, um, and I, I found that to be a really interesting um, concept that they've been playing with in this story. And they both use assumptions of each other. So Mobius, who's studied Loki's and Loki's life on the um, sacred timeline, knows like uh, Loki uses lies to get his way so he's expecting lies the whole time so even when Loki's telling the truth he's still sitting there going well Loki is lying whereas Loki is trusting Mobius to be telling the truth all the time uh, because he's been truthful you know yes he's the 
got um, a higher power status in that relationship but he's been truthful he's always said what he um what's on his mind like oh gosh you're annoying gosh could you shut up okay let's go get these files let's make a bed out of it um let's have that moment where we do discuss about the tva and that seems very genuine so loki's sitting there going i've made headway with this guy he's going to tell me the truth so they're both using those assumptions of the relationship they've formed and of course, the, the, the overarching thing is who's truth? Because we understand that the TVA has been lying to them all the way along. And the TVA's truth is actually a lie. Therefore, Mobius's truth is really a lie. And everyone else's truth is really a lie. All the turtles that are stacked on top of each other start <laughs> yeah, yeah. going everywhere. And it's much harder to, to lie to somebody if if you actually don't know truths about their situation. So the more truth you know about somebody, the easier it is to actually tell a convincing lie. So we get almost an inversion of this with with Renslayer and and Mobius later on, where she is obviously lying to him about a whole range of things. He's attempting to ask the questions to get the truth. And and it's just not not working because she doesn't know how many truths he already has. And so there's this really interesting, like I, I think the relationship between truths and lies was actually a really, really fascinating um, thing that came out of this this episode. And it does take into um, Mobius to Loki's face to say, you told me 50 lies, you're lying right now. Um, okay, let him let him say his last piece before we put him in the put him in the um, the time loop. And then, oh, to Loki's face, yep, yeah, no, you're lying. But then he does what he what his character is, which is investigate. Is Loki lying? We're going to go into the assumption that he's lying, but let's follow it up at least, because Loki might have an alternative motive, even if it's a lie. Why is he lying? Is an, um, the motive behind the lie? So the motive behind Mobius's lie was to get a rise out of um, uh, out of Loki, and you know, and it works. <laughs> um, whereas Mobius um, then goes and says, "Okay, well, why is Loki lying? Is it just because he wants to cause mischief? Is he just trying to save his ass? What's going on?" But then he takes that information and does an investigation. And by telling that lie about Sylvie's death. Mobius gets Loki to reveal the truth of his feelings for Sylvie um, in, in a way that he wasn't going to be able to, like if he had ever asked him directly, and I think he did ask him directly and he, he got got lies, by, by telling a lie about Sylvie, he actually got Loki to reveal a truth um, because of his, his reaction. And I, I found that absolutely, like uh, the, the whole time loop thing was really fascinating as well, and that, that in the midst of this, this eternal moment where where Loki's being beat up by Sif regularly, um, um, on his knees, Loki makes a confession to no one about, or actually to Sif, I think, but but also to himself about how he really feels uh, about w- what he really thinks about himself. We get to we get to see past the bravado and the curtain, um, and we see a confession of truth from Loki. I'm wondering about the the place of both Lokis in in this story. I, I want to go back to another sci-fi um, series that people might not remember anymore. It was called The Matrix. Um, and there was this, this character called Morpheus um, who offered 
people who are stuck in this dream, stuck in a, a false reality in a way, um, a, a, a pill, a red pill or a blue pill. And the question is, like, which one will you take? Will you um, take one where you wake up and the world is unchanged and you're oblivious to uh, to what we've just learned, or will you take, or will you take the pill that will release you from this uh, this um, virtual world that you're stuck in? Mm. Um, and and I, I look at the ways that these characters operate, and Sylvie becomes the Morpheus character. Mm. She's actually unintentionally, I think, releasing people from the image that they are, from the world that they're in. And I wonder what happens when she starts realizing what's what what's going on here. Does she? She doesn't take on the role of freeing people from the TVA, except for in this episode, she does, because she goes away with um, Hunter B fifteen, and there's this thing of show me. Show me, and she does. So she ate in this episode. She becomes the Morpheus. Yeah. Um. In in this in this episode, opening someone's someone's eyes to uh to the reality that um that they used to live in. It occurs to me that she she all her elaborate plans for resetting the timeline and setting off the bombs and doing all of those things, um, is 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 overthinking the situation when in fact she has the power in her fingertips to go around and just release all of the members of the TVA and that would destabilize the TVA more than any of her other schemes. But, but it, it hasn't occurred to her that she could actually do that just by returning their memories to them. And to us in the narrative, she becomes a hero. Hmm. Like she's freeing um, this hunter from the TVA, which we are now convinced is bad or at least very dodgy, um, if not in the typical sense of the word evil, she's become the hero that she wanted to be in the beginning, you know, um, she, she's always been that I want to take things down. Uh, Like I want to take the TVA down because they hurt me. And even when she gets introduced into the TVA, it wasn't, oh, you know, like, let me go. It was like, help that man that is being hurt by one of the hunters. Mm. So I think the narrative of the TVA has painted her with the villain brush but, yeah, and then once again, as you say, Will, instead of beating up and killing these hunt, um, these hunters, she could have easily just enchanted them and yep. got memories out and then released them back into the TVA. Set them free. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, like, I, I, I kind of think there's something really deep in this because we started this episode talking about construction and deconstruction, and there is a sense in which in our current age, um, there needs to be a significant deconstruction of the religious magisterium that exists, that that this this unchallengeable truth of what it is that we believe, regardless of which religion we're a part of, has become such a locked power system that it needs to be deconstructed in order to be properly understood. The danger is that if you deconstruct without a process for reconstruction, then where you leave people is in utter chaos and and in complete disarray and sometimes utter despair. And I, I, I think it's not just about religion, though, is it? It's about society altogether. We live in a world where there is an understood construct that we live in, um, and we've talked about this before, that you go into Centrelink, well, 
when we're allowed to go into Centrelink again, you go into Centrelink and there's lines on the carpet and it's not, there's not that like there's bollards or anything you get a line behind anymore. It's just lines on the carpet. And you understand as you walk in, you stand behind it. Well, we have those now with the dots um, 1.5 metres away. You're, the, so, the social construct is that you stand on that dot so that you social distance yourself from the person in front and the person behind. Like the amount of times I've been standing on the dot, but the person behind me has been too close it's kind of like I before the pandemic had this issue with people standing behind me too closely but and so when the social construct of stay away was I was like great yes finally and but it's like can you just I um I had someone follow me down an aisle because I was taking small steps back so that we could be a good distance while I was at work um the one you know 1.5 they kept coming up. I was like, no, 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 stay. <laughs> I had to like stop because they were breaking, like they weren't necessarily, they were still in the social construct of two years ago as opposed to now where it's like stay away. And, and it's intriguing because there's that thing which is about our physical health and we kind of understand it that this is how we are operating now because of there's a pandemic. But prior to that, we have a culture that we live in that had constructed itself around sort of seeing people in particular ways. If you're unemployed, you were you were spoken about in a particular way, or if you're uh, a female and pregnant, you were spoken about in a particular way. If you went to Centrelink, you would stand behind these lines because people assumed that this is how we need to need to organise you. And I wonder what we need to do to deconstruct that stuff, um, and maybe and whether or not it's possible to do that to see people as people again, um, because at the moment it kind of feels like we do live in a world that sees everyone like the TVA sees everyone, a part of the wider institution of Australia or of Canberra or of um, or of Geelong. I know that um, the law. Um, a social construct um, as it is plays a very important role because with the law you're either following it or you're breaking it (laughs) and so that can form a lot of our um, mental constructs in our minds so in Victoria we've just had the decriminalization of sex work Um, so sex work is now going to be a profession that you can do and that you won't get arrested for and you'll have access to um, greater protections uh, for your job. And so I think um, that would be an interesting to come back three years later to see what the social uh, consciousness thinks of sex work now that it's no longer a criminal act. So... You know, like um, we've seen it in the past where one of the presidents of the United States had the war on drugs, but it wasn't on drugs. It was on people who opposed the war. (laughs) Um, So he used the war on drugs because uh, marijuana was used by the hippies who were the pacifists and crack was used um, by the blacks um, of the time. And so by making them criminals, people thought badly about them and therefore they were associated with pacifism. So therefore 
pacifism was bad. So um, criminalisation is, I think, one but a major way of getting people to to think. And I think um, differently. I think that's a fascinating way that we make use of a narrative within a power structure or construct to target the people who are actually most likely to be a threat to our power system. I um I, I look I, I once heard uh, Reverend Dr. Sonny Chen um speak on the the story of the prodigal son, a well known story about um about someone who goes off and does their own thing um and in in defiance of the, the father. And so we the, the natural narrative we follow here is to go, oh we're the prodigals, God's the one who does everything the way that, that it's supposed to be done. Um, um, and and that it's our task to once we've worked out and deconstructed the fact that we've actually rebelled to return to God and to seek um, to be restored. So that's basically how that story works. But but uh, when I heard um, Sonny Chen speak about this, um, he talked about the way in which this could be a story about Jesus. And what does it mean if the Son of God, the the, the child of God, actually defiantly leaves heaven? to actually come and walk around with the people, to challenge the way that the the God actually um, thinks or treats uh, the people and in the process identifies with the humanity that that is there. And so this this theory of, of, of Christendom or, or Christ actually um, switches from an atonement theory where it was God and Jesus' plan for Jesus to come and die so that everyone who believes in him will not die but have eternal life instead becomes a rebellion, a rebellion by the sun to enter into the world, to, to explore um, the human condition and challenge the, the, the um, hierarchy's understanding of how human beings should behave. Now, well, we definitely get a, a lot less God interference in, this, in the New Testament from just a layman's term because it's all the 10 plagues and I'm going to turn your wife a wife into salt because she looked back at Lot um, at the I can't remember the term not that lot but you know that story um, but we don't see that so much in the New Testament uh, the wrath so maybe it worked maybe Jesus was like hey these humans are actually just trying their best maybe we should just give them a break um, Give them breaks, see how they go. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess what we've been able to do now is actually, you know, play with the narrative and reframe it, deconstruct it, look at it from another perspective, um, you know, a perspective that focuses on the life of Christ rather than the death of Christ. And just by making that small change to the narrative, what we're suddenly doing is is freeing up um, a, a different level of interpretation um, and we're empowering different people by actually interpreting it in that way. So I, I, I think that that part of what we need to be doing when we're deconstructing is also actually saying, okay, if not this, then what? And we're left with that really messy end of this episode where the head of the timekeeper falls off and comes to the ground. It's just an android. It's all smoke and mirrors. And everybody's kind of going, okay, if not that, then what? And they have to work out how to reconstruct. It's interesting what happens just before that too. I wasn't exactly sure where Loki stood on the whole killing the lizard people thing. But in that moment, Loki hands over the sword to Sylvie and 
she uses that to kill the gods. Um, I found it interesting, a couple of things. One is that he didn't do it himself. Mm. Two, that he actually allowed it to happen. Because up to that point of time, I wasn't exactly sure uh, where he stood on this um, and what would actually happen if they did do it. Um, I think that was a nice acknowledgement from Loki if this was the purpose, was that it was Sylvie. It wasn't about him, as Sylvie says in episode two. It's not about you. So by um, he easily could have done it because he had the sword, but by handing it to Sylvie, it wasn't about him. It was about Sylvie's crusade. Um, he's already mucked up Sylvie's crusade by uh, stranding them on an apocalyptic planet. So maybe this was not only a, okay, this is for you, but also uh, maybe a little bit of an atonement for, look, I'm helping you now. I'm sorry about before. Um, it's about you. So you've, you know, like it's a, tr- a common trope about the, the final blow. Like the Klingons have this big thing about who gets the honourable death Um killing um action heroes the person that i have been um, chasing down for years and years i get to kill you know um so by handing over the sword uh loki gets to say to sylvie okay you get to do what you want you know what you've wanted to do for so long it also hasn't been in um loki's narrative to take power he talks about wanting power but but just about every time we've seen Loki in the MCU, he has been in that worm tongue kind of position, you know, just next to power. Um, or, or, and even when he gains um, rulership of Asgard, he doesn't sit there in his own right ruling Asgard. He pretends to be, to pretends to be. Um, I was going to say Zeus, but it's not Odin. Zeus. Odin. He pretends <laughs> to be Odin. Um, and 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 and. Uh, occupies that position with another's face. So, so he also Loki- doesn't kill Odin. He sends Odin away. Yeah, that's right. So he's 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 not kind of prepared to take take power, but he likes or- to use the power of others. Um, which in or some he sense- doesn't like he doesn't like to make the fight like a final like by killing Odin. That's very final. By killing the timekeepers, that's very final. So he doesn't want that responsibility of the consequences that happen afterwards. So by um, giving it to Sylvie, it, Sylvie gets what she wants and Loki gets what he wants by not having that consequence. By putting Lo- um, Odin in a, a nursing home instead of killing uh, Lo- um, Odin's still there. There's not the power vacuum from his magic. Uh, he can go get him anytime something happens. So... Um, you know, he has that um, safety net <laughs> of not having yeah. the f- final decision. Yeah, at the end of all of this, no one gets what they want. No. At the end of this episode, no one gets what they want. At the end of this episode, we're still left with the question of what is truth or what is what is sacred and what is the, what is the timeline. We have uh, Sylvie holding the head of a robot um, head, so what she's longed for is... It is has been fake, has been a lie. We have um, Loki unable to share his truth and finding himself face to face with other versions of himself um, in a world that he doesn't know exists. Um, we have Mobius and we have B fifteen, um, all of whom are still left with the question of what is truth 
what is right, what is real. And that has none of that has been resolved by now, which is good because we've got a few more episodes to go or a couple more episodes and, to go. And that is the very real and often common consequence of deconstruction, that no one is left feeling fulfilled, um, that that in a sense con- deconstruction isn't a destination but but uh, maybe even a midpoint along the way um, that that um, that it's it's it, we we need to find a, a new way of thinking or understanding the universe once we've lost our old way. Well, there's that question about what what's wrong with chaos, um, or what's wrong with not uh, like de- uh, deconstruction being being a destination. We always assume that deconstruction always ends with uh, a reconstruction. Well, what if what if this is actually the space of finding out where we're, where we're supposed to be? Um, and, and I, I find myself constantly trying to, I guess, look at the, look at the water I, I, I live in or the, or the air that I breathe and, and look at the culture around me and think, well, what do I need to do to de- deconstruct that? What are the realities that I need to see that I've been blinded to? And maybe I, I'm, I'm a lot more open to the idea of chaos than I am with actually reconstructing yet another TVA around me. Structure is great. As someone with um, some neurodivergence who relies on structure, structure can be great in the right um, application, but chaos allows for questions. Structure doesn't. (laughs) So by having chaos, by allowing chaos, we can ask questions of ourselves, of um, institutions, of the world around us, of other people, uh, questions out of those chaos, chaotic moments as well. Well, the idea of uh, like having a set canon of, say, comic books and everyone living up to those canons, providing a structure for everything. And I think there's a point maybe that people looked at um, fan fiction as, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if if we open up the the doors to this kind of chaos of everyone telling stories? What you find is you, you, you actually gain a lot from that. It's it, Yes, it's chaotic. Yes, there are stories that don't match. Yes, there are relationships that don't exist in any other part of canon. But there's entire groups of people who are finding themselves uh, drawn in by stories that would never have been told otherwise. And that chaos is, is in this space actually been a blessing to many, many people. And that's where I guess the, the, the danger, the warning of, of order or law um, uh, or canon um, comes is that it can stifle creativity and imagination. Uh, it can remove the capacity to to look beyond. And when when an order or law or institution begins to prohibit the exploration of things outside of its canon, uh, I can remember uh, in my younger days discovering that there were apocryphal books of the Bible and as a Protestant that I had this secret section that I could go to in a Catholic Bible and read read these these things like the story of bell and the dragon and and uh and and uh, ecclesiasticus and and those kind of things and it used to seem really bad to be exploring this forbidden literature because that was the way the institution portrayed these these readings even if you were to look at the gospel of thomas or or things that were outside of that there's actually a sense in which we have had this prohibitive stance on things that are outside of canon um, so I think that's the warning for perfection, is that is that when things reach a, t- a point of total order, it almost seems that it's inappropriate or prohibited to actually explore any chaos. 
And at the other end of the spectrum, when all order is detested, we find ourselves with anarchy, which is actually also not a positive or creative or imaginative space. So there's this oscillation between law and chaos that actually becomes a very important process. Well, as timekeeper, we are out of time, so I have to impose my order now on this podcast and actually say that we've we've run out of time. There was one thing I wanted to explore um, before the end, um, uh, and that was the perfect moment. Well, not the perfect moment, the eternal moment. Um, Loki finds himself coming face to face with Sif over and over again, and it becomes an eternal hell. Um, I don't know if you've thought about what your uh, eternal moment would be if you were going to be locked into it. Um, what would be your perfect Groundhog Day? What would be your Groundhog Day from hell? Um, but uh, I thought that was an interesting thing to come up uh, in this episode. Uh, flies, the sound of them, the look of them, swarming. I can't, and then you all I'd have to do is touch styrofoam, and then that's me in hell. And so, um, yeah. Do you ever see those square <laughs> flies, the ones that kind of fly in a square around the roof? I often watch them; they they hypnotise me sometimes. Yeah, I can't. I can't stand. It's a sensory sensory thing for both uh, hearing, listening to flies, and touching styrofoam. So. Put me in a styrofoam castle with a swarm of flies. And you'll tell us whatever. You'll give away all the secrets. And only let me eat tomatoes. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Darren. about you, Darren? I'm trying to remember one where I've been kicked in the groin that many times. (laughs) Um, And I can't remember that. But I I do recall sort of a a hell that I would sit in and it was the funeral of a good friend of mine. Um, and it was such a badly done funeral that it became really something that is stuck in the back of my mind as something I don't want to ever sit through again. Mm. Um, and it had nothing to do with decisions or something that I made, but that, but having to sit through that over and over again um, seems like my idea of hell. I actually think it was partly the trivialness of the, the moment that Loki finds himself in that was actually the most hellish for him because he was going, I know this, this is no problem, I can face this, this is no issue. And then he discovers that actually it's the moment that breaks him um, because not because of what happened or because of Sif but because of the pointlessness of, of the situation he finds himself in. And it's such a short moment, isn't it? It's yeah. just a very short moment in his life that happening over and over and over and over again that it is the thing that breaks him. It does, And who knows how many times he had to live through that before it, before it broke him, but it does in the end. And it's a story that we're aware of, though, because it's a story from mythology. So there's this connection that the, the, the writers are giving us now to the broader Loki story. Mm. They're actually married in Norse mythology. And I'm pretty sure it's stiff, yeah. And in the stories we have, she does not have gold hair. But she has black hair. No, but the story is that uh, he cuts her hair and she kicks him in the groin and then he goes to, um, is it the elves, I think, um, to actually have hair made for her that is gold. Oh, right. Yep. Um, and so like someone's going to write in and say that is completely incorrect, but um, th- there's a story of mythology of mm. Sith's hair and Loki. 
Um, and it, it's a bit of an Easter egg for those people who are watching it. Yeah. Plus, um, everyone knew that she was going to appear in it somehow and they expected it to be some major act, action, some major part of the movie. And in the end, she just rocks in, kicks him in the groin and walks on again over and over and over again. Well, uh, I think um, rather than us go over, over and over again, kicking each other in the groin as we continue forward, um, we should probably release our audience um, uh, into another week. We'll be back next week to try and make sense of what happens after pruning. Is there life after pruning? Uh, perhaps uh, we will uh, get to find out what that alligator was all about. And if you wish to join us next week to hear it live, then please join our Patreon. Yes. Never odd or even on Patreon and uh, subscribe. And because we're stuck in that uh, never-ending loop of time, let's start all over again. Hi, my name's Darren. (laughs) I'm Hunter Michelle Kaufman. This week we cover the Nexus event. Um, the TVA captures Loki and Sylvie and Loki reveals what he has learned about the TVA agent's origins to Mobius. Meanwhile, Ravona brings Sylvie and Loki before the timekeepers and one of them gets ahead of himself when the prisoners break free. Oh, hang on. I think that's a really bad joke, isn't it? <laughs> and this is when people go, oh, this is my idea of a, a Groundhog Day event. <laughs> Anyway, it's time for us to say goodbye. So I, I'm I'm Darren Wright. I'm Hunter Michelle Kaufman. And I'm really thrown by the fact that I'm the third person to say goodbye tonight. Today, <laughs> I'm Timekeeper Will Nicholas. This is hell. Am I dead? Not yet. But you will be unless you come with us. 